0: Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming later in the show, part one of our tour of the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, where admission is free through the end of the month. And later actor, comedian, author, singer, and former Western Mass frequenter, John Hodgman, who is one of the stars of a new musical TV show that debuts on Hulu tomorrow. He's also a fake judge. He's the host of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, and is featured weekly in New York Times magazine, where he presides over minor household disputes, needs some Snapchat. Judgment from Judge John Hodgman, text or call 1-800-639-9120 or email us at thefab413 at nepm.org and maybe we'll let him do it. But first...
1: Time for our regular Thursday segment, McGoverning with McGovern. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Jim McGovern, the ranking member of the Rules Committee, as well as many other committees and appointments. And everybody has been talking this week since Donald Trump posted on his own social media site over the weekend that he would be arrested on Tuesday, which has not yet come to fruition. The indictment of Trump is pending. Is this something that is good for the Democrats or better for the Republicans? And is it good for the country overall?
2: Well, look, what's good for the country overall is when nobody is above the law. I mean, he's got like three cases that are pending that we know of right now. And I assume that we'll find out about New York sooner rather than later. But I think Georgia is, you know, getting close to decision and then we are learning more and more stuff about his cover-up in Florida with regard to classified documents so this guy has certainly behaved in a criminal manner I mean in my opinion but those decisions are up to grand juries and prosecutors and we will see what happens and that's the way our system works but it, it is really to me kind of gross that Trump is taking advantage of his supporters by trying to raise money off of his potential arrest that somehow that that's a that's a reason to give him more money he'll probably sell handcuffs um <laughs> in next to, to try to raise money it, it it really is kind of sick and amidst all of this his poll numbers amongst republican voters is at an all-time high i mean he is the front runner by far in the republican uh race for the, no- for the nomination to be president and um it's very depressing that that's the state of the Republican Party. But we'll see. I mean, and you know, whatever happens, happens. And
1: But what are you hearing uh, in the halls of Congress? I mean, are people that are Republicans actually ex- eagerly anticipating Trump being arrested because it will benefit the Republican Party in some way?
2: I think a lot of the Republicans I talk to privately wish he would go away, uh, just wish this would end and he would just disappear. But he's not. And so they feel compelled because they're worried about primary voters and their own reelections, they feel compelled to circle the wagons around him. Again, I, I pleaded with a, one of my colleagues last night, I said, you know, just for the sake of the country, he needs to go. I mean, he needs to leave the political scene. This is so destructive. And they admit it, but on the other hand, they understand what the political realities are for themselves and they wanna get re-elected. So you know, here we are, but it is, it's just a sad state of affairs. And there are things that we need to be focused on for the betterment of the American people, that the leadership of the House right now is focused on Donald Trump. And that's what Trump wants, but I think what the American people want is for us to get stuff done.
1: Yesterday, maybe it was uh, a way to ease your mind because of the stresses of being in elected office in such a time as this, and or maybe to honor Western Massachusetts, which is rife with so many children's book authors and illustrators from legends like Dr. Seuss and Eric Carl to living legends like Jane Yolen and Mo Willems. Yep. You you read a children's book into the congressional record yesterday, not like the time Senator Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham into the record <laughs> while filibustering. What prompted you to read a children's book into the record yesterday?
2: Well, because this is the Rules Committee, we, we, we are dealing with a bill that will come to the floor today and tomorrow, basically a bill that would make it easier for states and school districts to ban books. The Republicans say it's about parental rights, but it really is about basically taking books off the shelves of libraries and out of the school curriculum. The book I read yesterday was a a second grade book on Rosa Parks. It's called The Life of Rosa Parks by Kathleen Connors. In 1955, Rosa boarded a bus after work in Montgomery. At the time, there was a law that said a black person had to give up their seat if a white person needed it. Rosa refused, and she was arrested. On the day of Rosa's trial, black leaders planned a boycott of all the city buses in Montgomery, Alabama. It was a big statement because many blacks use buses to get around. Rosa was fined, but she wouldn't pay. By 1956, her case had reached the U.S. Supreme Court. It declared Alabama's segregation laws illegal. And it is banned in one of the school districts in Florida. I'm going to talk about this on the floor today. There are books about Martin Luther King. I am Martin Luther King is banned in some schools. You know, books on Nelson Mandela, I mean, books on Roberto Clemente. I mean, I mean it go on and on and on. Certainly books dealing with LGBTQI plus community have been banned all over the country. And this is chilling. And what this bill would do is basically put in place this kind of onerous set of requirements that if somebody raises a question about a particular book that school districts have to go through, if they don't, they lose all federal funding. This is about promoting culture wars. This is about promoting division and hate within our school system. And so, I mean, I read this book, and I I asked the Republican who was testifying on behalf of the bill, the chair of the Education Committee, do you believe this book should be banned? I mean, she wouldn't give me a direct answer. Well, I don't know if it's appropriate for the grade. So on the back it says it's appropriate for first grade. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, what is it about this book that would make anybody think that it is inappropriate for somebody to read in school? Now, some of the articles on this book were that people were objecting that the book said that because she was a black woman, Rosa Parks was asked to move to the back of the bus. They would prefer just she was asked to move to the back of the bus without any context. I mean, are you kidding me? We have legislators in Texas who say that if you teach kids about the Holocaust, you have to present the opposing side. I mean, this is insane, and this is happening. And by the way, a lot of our school committee people and a lot of our schools in Massachusetts, even some of our libraries, if you talk to them, are getting calls asking that certain things be taken off the shelf. This is a very dangerous trend, and it's something we need to resist. That's why I read the book, because this is insane. I mean, this is a book on Rosa Parks. It's a second-grade book. And we have people wanting to take it off the shelf because they think it might make second graders uncomfortable. Please, this, is, this, this, this craziness has to stop.
1: Will you be reading a book on the floor this afternoon?
2: I probably won't be reading a book. I will, I will come to the floor with a bunch of books that have been banned in various schools that I asked the Library of Congress to provide me. I hope it doesn't result in Republicans trying to censor the Library of Congress. But in any event, I will have all these books, a bunch of books on the floor because this is not about inappropriate materials in schools or in libraries this is just about people trying to promote this hardline right-wing super mega agenda and by the way if this were to pass there would be a chilling effect where some school districts would say you know what you know you're complaining about a book on Rosa Parks or you're complaining about a book about Martin Luther King I'm just gonna take just going to take it away because I don't want to have to deal with all the processes that you're going to require me to go through and potentially end up losing my federal funding if somebody doesn't think I handled this the right way. So I just we'll, we'll just ban it. That is what is particularly dangerous about this bill, because school districts right now are cash strapped. Teachers are paying of their pockets to provide supplies in schools. We, we, we need to upgrade schools. We need to pay teachers more. And they don't have all this money and all, all this time to go through all what this bill would require them to go through. So it might be just easier just to
1: ban the book. Not to mention the fact that there'd be a chilling effect on authors. Why would they want uh, to continue uh, to write uh, these books if they uh, know absolutely. that they're not going to have a market? Absolutely. For them?
2: These brilliant, uh, these these brilliant authors that have created these wonderful books that bring history alive. I mean, it will have a chilling impact on them. I, I'll be honest with you. I never thought when I first got elected when I, oh, 100 years ago <laughs> that um, that that in 2023, we would be talking about how books are being banned in the United States of America. And yet that is what is happening. This is the kind of stuff that we're trying to fight against. You know, and if people feel uncomfortable because Rosa Parks was asked to move move to the back of the bus because she was a black woman, you know what? They should. We all should feel uncomfortable about that part of our history. So in any event, that's why I did it yesterday.
1: Eliza, a listener from Amherst, says they want to know how Deerfield River qualifies as wild with this new bill that you've reintroduced with Senator Markey, the Deerfield River Wild and Scenic River Study Act wants to know why it qualifies as wild since its flow is totally controlled by power company dams. She agrees it's scenic, but it's not wild. I'm concerned it waters down the significance of wild and scenic if rivers that don't meet those criteria are added. And then add to this, there was a, a, not on the Deerfield River, but the Connecticut River in Turner's Falls, the first light power company um, has revealed and the state... Delegation has uh, spoken up about an oil leak from the dam on the Connecticut River. Are these rivers actually wild when they're controlled by power companies?
2: Well, wild and scenic, you know, the definition is broad. I understand what she's saying, but the whole point of this is to make sure that we have more resources available to us to deal with some of the problems that you just outlined. I mean, to deal with, um, you know, some of the dams, to deal with some of the leaks, to deal with some of the things that, quite frankly, you know are are destroying the river we want to make sure that the river you know is eligible for those for those funds so that uh... wildlife can thrive and uh, you know and that um, they become places that are more treasured and valued so i understand what she's saying but uh... you know in order for us to be able to make this these rivers eligible for the kind of funding uh... The, um, that we think can help actually improve the river i mean this is the only game in town i'm not sure there are very many Truly really wild rivers, um, in the purest sense of the world, or um, of that significance in the United States. But I think our, our goal is to is to do what we can to make it uh, to make it it better.
1: Are you familiar with this uh, oil leak that uh, First Light has revealed? Uh, not, Senator. I, I'm not.
2: You just, you're, yeah. You're, well, just- look into yeah. this.
1: We'll talk about it next week because uh, First Light and that dam in particular, as well as the Northfield Mountain Pumping Station, are up for a federal. Relicensing, the state delegation, including Senator Joe Comerford, representative, Susanna Whips, and Representative Natalie Blay have issued a statement asking them to stop the current leak, clean it up, prevent the spread, and do a full review of the facility. But we'll, we'll get into that more maybe well, next I'm happy
2: week. To, I'm happy to join with them, and I'll, I'll follow up with, with them to find out how we can be helpful here.
1: Another listener question. Tina from Florence wants to know about the fence that went up around the Leeds VA. Why was it needed? Did they have to cut down so many trees? Now patients and workers don't have access to the trails in the surrounding woods. Would that be good for mental and physical health? She also says she's disturbed by the light pollution from the VA. Is there a way for the local community to communicate with whomever is in charge there? Now you've come forward to talk about a lot of different veterans' housing issues, especially in light of what went on at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home previously. And I know there's some back and forth between what is a state facility, what is a federal facility. But any thoughts on the the Leeds facility?
2: So yeah, I don't. I, I I'm not. I don't. I, I don't. I'm not familiar with the new fence that went up but but I'm, I'm happy to look into it and i'll uh she can call kobe in my northampton office but i will i will follow up today to find out why that is and if it's obstructing walking trails though that's obviously problematic and you know, we want to make sure the va which we fought to not get closed down is obviously there not just for our veterans but is also friendly to the community at large so Let me find out why they even did that. I don't even know. Well, we can follow
1: up on that one next week, too. Another question from the NEPM News Department. The head of TikTok coming to Capitol Hill. Uh, This app, which is owned by Chinese company, is viewed as a security threat by the Biden administration. It was also viewed as a security threat by the Trump administration. The U.S. wants the company to sell the app. For people's smartphones, or says it could be banned. Some bills have been introduced in Congress on this. There could be some legal hurdles. But should the U.S. try to ban TikTok if the pressure to sell it fails? Look, I, you know,
2: I I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I, all I can tell you is that uh, my daughter would disown me if
1: I voted to ban. TikTok. My I know uh, my children would feel that same way. But have you been briefed on any of the what the, these potential yeah, yeah, security I, I threats am, are? And I and, I, and I'm, I, I have been briefed, and I'm not convinced
2: yet. That the only way to deal with this is by banning TikTok. I mean, to be honest with you, China poses a security threat. But shutting down TikTok it has implications that go deeper than just shutting down this one platform. There are other ripple effects that can could happen. So, I so I mean, so my my, my view is that that you know, yeah, there, there, maybe there needs to be better oversight. But I'm not quite sure we're at the I'm at the point anyway where I think that the appropriate thing to do is to shut the thing down totally. I I don't, I don't but. You know, and I've I've been told nothing yet that has convinced me that that's the case. And I'm not trying to downplay China's threat. I'm just simply saying that's where I I am. And, you know, if they're moving in that direction, I'm sure we'll get additional briefings. There seems to be some
1: movement to say that the company could store all American data in the U.S. as opposed to having China be asked as a a compromise so that our children don't disown us.
2: Right. And I think that that, to me, is a better direction for us to move in than talking about banning because as you know, a lot of people, especially young people, utilize TikTok um, and um, get a lot of information from TikTok. My daughter is a TikTok activist, if you will, uh-huh. but, but begs me never to go on to, never to <laughs> go on. You don't TikTok. know any
1: of the dances? You can't do the Wednesday Adam yeah. dance from the new Wednesday <laughs> yeah. show on Netflix? <laughs> you better
3: die when I
1: show up. Uh, I can do um, most of it, but anyway.
2: But so, (laughs) so we'll just have to see how this goes. But I I don't. I think talking about banning it is to me to be extreme and a little bit over the top at this particular point. uh, And so we'll see what happens.
1: Congressman McGovern, who just had a follow-up on the White House Conference on Hunger that he helped to coordinate with some of the local hunger activists here. Uh, We'll get into more of those details on a future episode of the show. I'll also say that a week from Saturday, you're going to be at the Shea in Turner's Falls with comedian Jimmy Tingle in a hunger uh, fundraiser that I'll be a part of for the Franklin County Community Meals Program to make sure our neighbors have enough to eat. And we'll have more conversation about that, as well as Jimmy Tingle on the show next week. Thanks, as always, Congressman, for joining us. And if you're listening, you can send a question at any time. The Fab 413 at nepm.org, and I'll ask the Congressman on your behalf. Thank you so much. Take it easy. Be
0: safe. When the sun goes down. Coming up, former Valley vacationer, actor, and comedian John Hodgman, who stars in the new Hulu show Up Here. He's also a fake judge presiding over minor household disputes. Need some snap judgment from Judge John Hodgman? Text or call 1-800-639-9120 or email thefab413 at nepm.org. But
1: first, part one of our tour of the Clark Art Institute, coming up next in the fabulous 413 on NEPM. One time, we took my nine-year-old in here, and my children were not as enthused about coming to an art museum as I was, so we played a game where we let them count the butts on all the statues and paintings, and the running tally made it an engaging experience for kids, and this- is
3: always a way to appreciate art. and this
1: Backeye has a, a naked butt, so one. Oh, the baby has one, too. Two. Yes,
3: I took my little girl to the Louvre. She was still in a stroller. And we're pushing her through the Louvre Sculpture Gallery. And she turned around and said, why are there so many naked people in here? Kids get it.
1: (laughs) We're walking through a tunnel from the new building to the older building at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown. Kelisse, you wanted to make a special Fabulous 413 field trip out here because.
0: Well, they have some really cool exhibits happening. And they are waiving admission until the end of March.
1: And that's coming up. If you've never been to the Clark, it's a gorgeous museum.
0: What's your name? Hi, I'm Vicki
3: Saltzman. I'm the Director of Communications here.
1: Nice, so we're communicating with you as we go through this beautiful museum.
3: The building we're about to enter into is the original museum building, opened by Mr. and Mrs. Clark in 1955.
1: Sterling and Francine Clark, opened May 17th, 1955.
3: Sterling and Francine are still here. They're buried under the front steps of the museum building. That's why the Clark is haunted. Not haunted. Every building in New England is haunted. No, no. Wow, that's cool. Their tombs are right there in the staircases. Mr. Clark was buried in Paris. He died here, actually in the building. And then Mrs. Clark had him buried in Paris. Then she reconsidered a few years later and had his body exhumed and brought over here. Love it.
1: (laughs) Such a cool story. All right, well, let's go look. This is where the permanent collection is, right? So we're going to go in there and take a look around.
3: The first gallery that you enter when you come to the Clark is our American Gallery, and this is full of amazing works by Winslow Homer, who is one of Sterling Clark's favorite painters. We have one of the largest collections of works by Homer of any institution anywhere in the world. You see a lot of seascapes along the walls, a very dramatic piece called Undertow which shows a drowning woman being saved by lifeguards which was inspired by a real event well, that happened in New Jersey when Winslow Homer was there well, I- And then, also here, we have a few works by Frederick Remington, uh, the great cowboy artist.
1: We're walking into the Impressionist Gallery. This is one of your more popular galleries?
3: This is. It's the largest space in the museum, and it holds a large part of our collection of works by the various French Impressionists. Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Claude Monet, Camille Pissarro, Bert Morisot, they're all here and they look fantastic in this room which has a beautiful glass ceiling that lets in a lot of subdued light that plays off the colors that the Impressionists were so famous for um, using. Over here, I'll show you this painting of some humble onions and cloves of garlic. That was Sterling Clark's favorite painting in his entire collection. It's actually considered to be one of Renoir's masterpieces. You would think perhaps that a painting of a person might be
1: something that was more appealing, but this is onions and garlic. I think.
3: They're very humble subjects for sure, but one art critic said you can honestly get the sense of the onion peels themselves, the crackly skins on the onions, and he said it's not a still life because Clearly, these onions and garlics are dancing across their tabletop. They're just so full of life.
1: You can almost smell the garlic. That might just be what I had for dinner last night.
3: Long ago, when they would do school tours here, one of the docents would cut an onion and bring it in and hide it in the gallery. We don't allow food in the gallery these days. (laughs) But she wanted the kids to get the scent of an onion while they looked at this picture.
0: That's the coolest part of this. You really can like almost tactically feel them just by looking at it.
1: Don't touch it though. Don't touch the paintings. I
3: am not the one you have to worry
0: about here for that sort of thing. I know I am.
3: Then this Renoir painting here is called A Box at the Theater. And if you stand just so, you'll see that there used to be a man in the painting, but Renoir clearly changed his mind and overpainted him. Hmm. So now it's just
1: Two women. Oh, yeah. hidden.
3: artists change their mind.
1: The eyes are following us everywhere we go. How do they do
0: that? I don't know, but
1: I love it when it happens. It's because Clark is haunted, as we just said. It's not.
3: There's two more bots. Well, this is just what we call Gallery 3. They sometimes do call it the Academic Gallery. This gallery showcases the works of some of what they call the academic painters, who were the artist against whom the Impressionists were rebelling. Very traditional art, very practiced, very studied, very careful, where the Impressionists were really sort of the rebellious breakouts in their time. So we have some of the great pieces in our collection here. John Singer Sargent's Femme d'Ambergri. I love that
1: painting. I love John Singer Sargent kind of as a rule.
3: He's terrific. We love him too. This painting is by far the most famous and beloved painting in our collection. People come here specifically to see her. They're mesmerized by her and spend hours studying this painting. It has 17 different shades of white. A little firm white.
1: Titanium white. White paint. Plain white. Magic white. Tell me a little bit about what it depicts.
3: It depicts a woman who is standing over an oil lamp burning umbergris, which is whale oil. It's in a Middle Eastern looking location with a tiled floor and some Oriental style rugs. And she's got a beautiful white cowl over her head so that she can inhale the scent of the ambergris as it burns in the lantern. Yeah. And if you get really close, you can even see the smoke coming out of the lamp. I'm going
1: really close, but I'm not gonna touch it. Yeah, I love this painting so much. And I love whatever that brooch is she's wearing and how metallic and how that pops out just like the, the lamp. Oh, tell me about the piano in the middle of this room. The
3: piano in the middle of the room is a piece that we acquired about 15 years ago now, I think. It's by a painter, Sir Lawrence Almatatama, who also worked as a theatrical designer. He was commissioned by a... New York millionaire, Henry Marquand, to do an entire suite of furniture in Mr. Marquand's new mansion that he was building on Fifth Avenue, and Alma Tatma was commissioned to do the music room. So this piano, which is heavily coated in all kinds of woods and beautiful carving, was one of many pieces in the room, all of which looked like this. It's quite the piano. The piano has a long history. Mr. Marquand's family auctioned all of his furnishings off after his death and went to a man who brought the piano home and his wife hated it and said it couldn't stay in her house. (laughs) So he put it into the lobby of his theater on Broadway, which is now the Saul Hirschfeld Theater. So for many, many years, this piano lived in the lobby. You can just imagine the people putting their drinks down or (laughs) their cigarettes when the bell rang to go back into the show. The piano under the lid is lined with a parchment Piece of paper that has been signed by many of the musicians who actually played this piano. The first two to sign it were Gilbert and Sullivan. Wow. I am the very model of a modern major general. It's got the signatures of Richard Rogers. Ten minutes ago, I met you. All sorts of performers who played this piano at different points in time. Amazing. Right here at the Clark. Right here at the Clark
1: where admission is waived through the end of the month.
3: Your admission is free, you should come and see it. This piano was not free when we bought it. It was, it was one of the most expensive pianos ever sold at auction wow. at the time that we bought it. It has since been surpassed when George Michael bought John Lennon's white piano. Wow. That was a higher price, but this one we think is pretty special.
4: Here
1: sure
3: it
1: We're still in the classical traditional gallery here, Gallery 3, right? At the Clark, and what's the painting we're looking at right now?
3: This painting, which is the largest one in our collection, is called Nymphs and Seder. It's by William Adolph Bouguereau, and it is a spectacularly large canvas showing several nymphs who are trying to drag this Seder, who's clearly very unwilling, into the water. And the reason that they're doing it is because when a satyr got wet, he would lose his power over them. So the women are trying to entice him into the water, and their goal is to get him as wet as they can so they can be freed of him. And this painting has an amazing backstory. It hung for many, many years in a bar on Wall Street called the Hoffman House, which was sort of one of those high Victorian gentlemen's bar sort of thing. Apparently Mr. Clark visited there sometimes (laughs) and was aware of the painting over its lifetime in a smoky bar you can imagine the painting didn't look as good but the hoffman house eventually closed everything was auctioned off someone bought this painting with the intention of destroying it because they thought it was pornographic with all these nude women in it Luckily, somebody convinced them not to do it, but it got tossed into a warehouse where it sat for many years. And then Mr. Clark happened upon an auction catalog with this painting in the catalog, and he knew it instantly from his days at the Hoffman House. So he bought it, and he had it cleaned, and this was the only painting that he ever showed publicly before opening the museum. So most people had no idea that he had a big art collection. But they put this on display in New York City to raise money for the French Resistance during World War II. And people paid 25 cents to come to see it, and they raised over $50,000. a lot, lot of people. <laughs>
1: So this is a new acquisition here at the Clark? This
3: is a new acquisition. We're very excited, and it's perfect. We're in Women's History Month. This is by an artist named Evelyn De Morgan, and she was a British painter. This painting is called The Field of the Slain. It was painted during World War I, and as you can see, it's got this very, very beautiful angel who's all draped in mourning garb. In the folds of her cloak are the faces of many of the fallen from World War One and you can see in the background many many other bodies strewn about behind her. So it was really a, a pretty political statement from Evelyn Morgan about the loss of life, the loss of innocence, the loss of youth at a time where Britain was struggling mightily during the war. This painting was done in 1916 and the Loss of humanity is probably the most intense feeling you get when you look at this.
1: What are you looking at over here, Calise?
3: It's an
0: inkwell. This is the coolest thing. It's a sculpture. It's an inkwell. Sarah Bernhardt uh, self-portrait as Chimera. Inkwell. Like, this is so, so neat. It's super goth. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I like dragon wings. Yeah, dragon wings. Very
3: cool. Well, Tell, she also has a fish tail yes. if you look. So Sarah Bernhardt in her day was one of the greatest actresses in the theater, but she was also a very accomplished painter and sculptor. So this inkwell she made as a self-portrait. That's where you put your pen in her
1: hair. Yeah, wow. You can put your pen in her hair. It's very cool. Yeah. So
3: she's in the guise of a chimera, which is a mythic creature. You can see she has claws for hands. She has sort of like lion's paws for her feet. She's in a crouched position. She has bat wings and then a fish's tail. But she's in a beautiful Victorian blouse with a ruffled collar and a big bow. So she's a little bit of everything. But Sarah Bernhardt was known to be very dramatic, which is good for an actress, certainly. (laughs) Um, She often would pose herself in coffins. So I think she might have had, you know, an interesting um, sensibility about how to get attention.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice way to put a little bit of a goth streak. Yeah, there was, you go. <laughs> a
1: little bit. Oh, well, there's another, yeah, another bat wing, dragon wing. It's just straight up Satan, this one over
3: here. <laughs> He's got a great look on his face. This is Satan, another little sculptor. Hi, Satan. Nice to Hi. meet you again. Uh, he has an amazing look on his face. He clearly looks annoyed about something, but he's he's a charming little devil, if you will.
0: <laughs> Thanks to Vicki Salzman of the Clark for showing us around, and we'll hear more of her adventures, well, our adventures with her, tomorrow. Up next, comedian, author, actor, and
1: singer... John Hodgman. We'll talk about his new show up here and see if you have a minor household dispute for him to adjudicate with his Judge John Hodgman robes on. Text or call 1-800-639-9120.
0: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
4: I've been thinking a lot about this.
0: New York is where real writers live, and I am starting to think that I am a real writer.
3: Why didn't you tell me? Do not say it careful now. Keep it to yourself,
4: Linz. I just have all these voices in my head, all the time. Now you've done it.
0: It's great to really get someone to know and run back and inside out.
4: And that's when you can really trust someone to understand what you are all about.
0: I came here to focus on myself. This could be a life-changing opportunity.
4: You have no reason to believe that. What about this reason? It's funny, the devil's actually a very misunderstood card. We just met the devil at the Clark
1: Art Institute. Welcome back to the (laughs) Fab 413. That is from the screenwriter of Tick, Tick, Boom, the director of Hamilton and the songwriters behind the Book of Mormon. Up here, a Hulu original, premiering tomorrow.
0: A musical romantic comedy set in New York City in the waning days of 1999. So yesterday. Yeah, no. Up here follows the story of one ordinary couple as they fall in love and discover that the single greatest obstacle to finding happiness together might just be themselves and the treacherous world of memories, obsessions, fears, and fantasies that live inside their heads. And
1: one of those treacherous memories, obsessions, fears, and fantasies that lives inside their heads is played by author, actor, comedian, personal computer, fake internet judge, and former Valley vacationer, Massachusetts' own John Hodgman, who joins us
0: today. By the way, if you have a minor household dispute for Judge John Hodgman to issue summary judgment upon text or call 1-800-639-9120. Thank you for joining us, John
1: Hodgman. Hello. Hello. I'm so
4: glad to be here with my old friend monty Belmonte and my new friend calise the the team that finally put satan on public radio yeah. in, twice. in massachusetts twice, twice in, even. Well done. in one show yeah, we're that's just well done. Like, that's been the
0: we goal. could we really should have gone for a hat trick but we weren't trying hard enough
4: uh i can't i can't pledge faster <laughs> 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 I'm on the website right now, donating. So Aww. thank you, thank you. Before we
1: get into the uh, the show itself, which sounds great, I watched the trailer. It comes out tomorrow. I think the whole Belmonte family is going to watch the whole thing. Monty,
4: it literally sounds great. It's a beautiful musical with great songs,
1: with like <laughs> written by some of I know your favorite uh, people behind the musicals that we love, that you love, that I love. It's but incredible. We all love. Yeah, the,
4: but, but you were going to say something. Yes. <laughs> We call Before the show the Fabulous Four One
1: Three, so we don't just yeah. randomly talk to random celebrities. We are talking no, no. to you because you have a strong
4: four one three connections. I owe you a lot of money. You
1: <laughs> You're not allowed to talk about that because we're it's not allowed to talk radio. about that. We learned about no, that
4: yesterday the I owe way. I owe Monty nothing but my heart. Oh. I I I was not merely a vacationer, but I would say a part a part time resident for sure. Pioneer Valley. In a, in a town which I can now reveal is Leiden, Massachusetts. Ooh. I used to call it the town of internetless hills. Right. Because it was very, because I didn't want people to know where I lived. And now I don't care. I don't live a But it was also very, very challenging to get any internet at all up in those hills.
0: You can't hide there now. There's been a whole state initiative to get them high speed internet. Yeah. So that's I, not the case. I anymore.
4: know, and I, I applaud it greatly. I mean, it's such an important part. Uh, of, of developing rural communities to, to get high-speed internet. So well done. <laughs> and in many
1: ways, John Hodgman, your career uh, in its skyrocketing sense took off because of writing a book at the counter at the cafe, The Lady Killer at the Montague Book Mill.
4: Yes. Well, uh, at the counter, I didn't just write it in one day. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Many times at the the lady killer. I went
4: several times and sat in different places. (laughs) Two days. (laughs) Two whole days. I imagine you in the
1: same chair at the bar there, writing and writing and
4: writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, however many thousands of years ago it was, I was writing my first uh, book, The Areas of My Expertise, which was kind of an absurdist almanac of fake facts. And I would avail myself of all of the incredible... Uh, old research books and other books at the book mill uh, of getting inspiration. And then I would sit at the lady Killigrew uh, and, and, and work on the book there. And a lot of it was written there. And, um, it was soon after that, that the book came out that I was asked to be a guest on the daily show with John Stewart. And we had a good time talking about the fake facts. And I got, I got hired to be on the show and was kidnapped by television and it changed my life. And now look where we are
1: now. Look, where you're back on television, which must be
4: back on television on, on, on Hulu which is singing.
1: Which, that is remarkable to me. You have, I mean, when you perform live, oftentimes uh, yes. as a comedian, you would sing and play ukulele. So yeah,
4: but you have to understand the people behind this show, <laughs> this is like a, 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 Voltron of Broadway. Just like the most, <laughs> all of the most powerful, all of the most powerful giant robots of Broadway have come together to create an even, an, even huge more impressive giant robot of Broadway, which is the show. So as you mentioned, it was written. The songs are all composed by Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, um, who uh, who wrote a little song called "Let It Go" for Frozen. Huh. Oh. Uh, never Bobby, heard of it. Yeah. Bobby also wrote the songs for uh, Book of Mormon and co-created Avenue Q, and and together they conceived this idea of a, of a of a love story, where the two the two leads, in this case, a man and a woman. Both have voices in their heads, voices of insecurity, voices of self-doubt, voices of self-judgment that are embodied by people in in their lives and in their memories. So it stars Carlos Valdez from The Flash and Mae Whitman from Parenthood and a million other things. Avatar The Last and, Airbender,
1: Tinkerbell. Yeah,
4: well, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, she is... I'm sorry. I forgot about her iconic voice acting voice. Yes, yes. And she's just an incredible talent. And an incredible. they're both incredible singers, too. And they're so great. And I play... The the fa- Mae's character's father, but more the memory of her father because whenever she's in a moment of self doubt, she gets visited, kind of Ebenezer Scrooge like, by three ghosts. Uh, <laughs> the memory of her father, the memory of her mother, and the memory of her middle school best friend. And you know, so Katie Finnerrin, who plays my 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 fake wife on television, the, her mother, is a, a Broadway actress of incredible renown. On the other side of the equation, you know we have uh, uh, Andrea Burns, who's a huge Broadway star, and I'll Brian stop you Stokes right there. Mitchell. The
1: sister-in-law of of the Western Mass's own Kelsey Flynn, radio personality, comedian in the area, and so oh, shout is out. Oh, that to- so? Yes. I wish I had known
4: that last night when I saw her. Uh-huh. Well, hopefully, <laughs> uh, for the
1: season two, uh, when you start shooting, they will be, uh, you'll, yeah. be able to Bring
4: that up. Broadway legend Brian Stokes Mitchell is a recurring ca- character. Just incredible talents, and then of course it's co-executive produced and co-created. Uh, by with Lopez is with uh, by Stephen Levinson who wrote the book for um, Dear Evan Hansen, mm-hmm. and Tommy Kail, uh who directed Hamilton and directed uh, many of the episodes in the season. That's so, a giant pile of big names. Yeah, yeah. So like I get the the call like Do you want to be in this thing? We've convinced Hulu that you can sing. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> It seems pretty intimidating. I mean but... like
0: if you've got that talented a uh, roster, they can definitely <laughs> yeah. build you something that is your vehicle rather than you trying to yes. fit conform yeah. to a score and that I know, suit. <laughs> I know Bobby
4: and and Kristen for years and they, they know my limitations and wrote to them. There you go. And I was not asked to dance, although I did improvise one twirl. Oh, wow. I, was twirl, twirl ask, I was
0: going to ask. I was going to. ask I can't ask wait if you to danced. see
1: you singing and dancing. I mean, I'm really yeah. thrilled to see you, this. There's
4: well, you uh, you can't see it, but but because <laughs> we're on the radio, yeah. Do it now. <laughs> but I will say that I twirl on the line. Note the spatter of blood at the base of the stairs. <laughs> Oh. If you would like to know the context for that, watch up here on Hulu <laughs> Friday, all that, episodes starting Friday.
0: That just got my viewership for yeah, sure. That was the dulcet
1: tones of one John Hodgman, who is a, a, also a fake internet judge on his podcast, the Judge John Hodgman podcast, as well as featured in the New York Times every Sunday in the magazine. He will yeah. adjudicate for you at 1-800-639-9120 if you call or text now. Uh, yeah, we have... If you've
4: got a dispute with your spouse, your your roommate, uh, about any any old thing. We just heard a case that came out this week. Between two on the podcast, between two two cousins, very close cousins, uh, one of whom uh, they're they're still friends and have been since childhood. When the younger cousin was three and the older was seven, they were at a family reunion and the uncle came out wearing a Mister Peanut costume and scared the Satan out of the little <laughs> the littlest cousin.
0: There's our hat trick.
4: She got so scared by Mr. Peanut coming out of the woods, which you can imagine would be terrifying to a two- or three-year-old.
1: Especially if you have a peanut allergy.
4: Right. And then she ran away from the Mr. Peanut costumed uncle, and he was like, oh, no, I upset her. I have to go comfort her. So he ran after her going, come back, come back, and has been traumatized by images of Mr. Peanut since, primarily because the older cousin, to this day, 20 years later or whatever, is constantly sending the younger cousin... Mr. Peanut Images oh to her my. phone. Oh. That is, that's not and fun. And so they came to the court of Judge John Hodgman, the podcast that I do with Maximum Fun Network every Wednesday. Uh the the younger cousin uh, begging me to uh, to have an injunction to order the older cousin to stop doing this. If you'd like to know what I... It's a really funny episode. You can listen to it anywhere you get your podcast, Judge John Hodgman. And I'm lucky to be a, a semi-frequent guest as the summertime fun-time guest bailiff
1: on the judge. Hodgman a- absolutely.
4: Podcast. every summer uh, uh, Jesse goes on vacation at my regular bailiff and and Monty comes in. He's a fan favorite. But those are the kinds of disputes that we adjudicate absurd on on their face. But when you dig in, they they get to be a little bit a little bit meaningful about what family means to each other and how to respect each other's boundaries and that sort of thing. But if you have some dumb case you'd like me to hear on the radio, you can call that number. What was it again? (laughs)
1: 1-800-639-9120 or text like my wife seems to have tried to do but didn't actually know that I can't respond to those texts. If you have an actual thing you want adjudicated, you have to say it in the text. But you can also email thefab413 at nepm.org. Like Dr. Dave Gottsagan from Northampton has done, he says, please ask John Hodgman what he suggests for two Theoretical spouses, with the wife in the case, addicted to MSNBC, Rachel Maddow when she's on and the rest of the Evening Crew, and violent murder drama mysteries from Breaking Bad to current shows like Slow Horses. The husband, in this case, prefers PBS documentaries, which are rarely watched at this time. They both like comedy shows like Stephen Colbert. And the Celtics, he includes as I don't believe that to be a comedy show, but it's in the same sentence.
0: <laughs> it's not this season.
1: Other than taking the two TV, two room route or always watching Stephen Colbert when the basketball season ends, what do you suggest?
4: What do you watch when one spouse wants to watch dark, grizzly dramas plus MSNBC and the other one wants to watch what, uh, documentaries? PBS, PBS documentaries.
1: Thank you. Nature Dr. documentaries. Dr. Day, for do- political. Uh, PBS, yeah.
4: History documentaries. Who knows? Where's the Venn diagram there? Well, obviously, I'm going to recommend up here on Hulu. I'll, I'll
1: just... <laughs> Achieve that one right up for you.
4: <laughs> um, I also recommend, and I, I have a vested interest in this one too, a little bit. A poker Face <laughs> by Ryan Johnson, yes. yes, which is on Peacock, yes, starring Natasha Lyonne. It's a mystery of the week uh, TV show in the style of Murder She Wrote or Columbo, but Natasha Leone is the the de facto detective, and it has a lot of real real celebrity guest stars and I sneak in to one episode as
0: well. Oh hey.
4: But you know, one of the things about Up Here and Poker Face as well is that these are shows that make you feel good. Like <laughs> this is Poker Face is a mystery where yeah. people get up to some mischief, you know what I mean? Stuff happens, but but it's a show about a good person trying to do the right thing and by the skin of their teeth getting away with it. And I just, when I was on uh, on tour with Judge John Hodgman the c- past couple of months, people came up to me and just would say, I love Poker Face so much. And I realized that, you know, at least in the streaming, cable, prestige, television area, we really had a lot of shows that are very challenging, uh, that are very politically relevant, that are that are a little hard to take, a little punishing at times. Just having something that you can sit down and watch with your theoretical spouse and just have a little <laughs> bit of... A little bit of fun, but a lot of storytelling excellence. I find it to be very refreshing, and Up Here is the same, I think people will find.
1: Well, we have to take a break here on The Fabulous 413, but if you have a dispute, we only have a few minutes left, but get it in there. 800-639-9120. We'll be back in just a second with more with John Hodgman, the star of Up Here, which debuts on Hulu. Tomorrow, you're listening to NEPM
0: it's time to give up and come home
4: i belong in this city you've been hit by three cabs at very low speeds
0: all those voices floating in her head saying no in a million different ways they don't see what i do she doesn't appreciate you she doesn't deserve you this isn't your life this is my life i am sick and tired of everyone telling me what i'm supposed to do (laughs)
1: That is a clip from the new Hulu show, which debuts tomorrow. Up here, starring the Valley's own former vacationer and part-time resident, John Hodgman, who joins us in the fabulous 413 right now.
0: The
4: star. The star. The star. The star. Uh, star. May and Carlos are the star, A star. I'm I'm very happy to be along for the ride.
0: (laughs) We're we're glad you're along for the ride, too. You had a limited podcast about iClaudius, which I appreciated because I think we had very similar experiences with it i know what my most traumatic scene is in it, and the second one would be brian blessed with his eyes just open but the first one is definitely um the suicide were you talk
4: about Are you going to talk about augustus's death scene and i claudius i love it but oh, what were you
0: going to say oh i was going to ask you what your what your most traumatic scene in the in the miniseries was
4: because oh, my, well <laughs> I mean, obviously, that scene, the scene where Brian Blessed playing the Emperor <laughs> Augustus, who finally comes to his death that has been worked up to through the series... That it's one of the most spectacular pieces of acting I've ever seen.
0: Three minutes.
4: It's it's, it's uh, the guy the guy dies in front of your eyes and you believe that he's dead. It's incredible. Yes. But yes, I loved it. I'm sorry that you went through that. I Claudius no. is traumatic to a lot of people. Yeah. That's I, why we made a podcast about I,
0: it. I, 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 I still <laughs> love it. I it, also it's sponsored by Mr. Peanut. I think love <laughs> it though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where does that it's, podcast live for
1: people who might have loved I Claudius and
0: well, want that to was dig
4: a, deep? A, that was a mini-series podcast that I made with my friend Elliot Kalin, who used to be the head writer for The Daily Show. Uh, it, and we made it as part of a, a promotional uh, deal for our pledge drive, the Max Fund drive for the Maximum Fun Network. Which so I believe might be a,
1: happening right now, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say that with NPR rules.
4: It, <laughs> may be hap- it might be happening right now. The only way you would find out is if you were to go to maximumfund.org. That's MaximumFun.org, and you would find the Judge Sean Hodgman podcast there, as well as the iPodius uh, podcast. It's called iPodius, obviously, yes. is our podcast. <laughs> yes. We just did another one about the TV show The Prisoner, which also aired on PBS oh. uh, in a lot of markets, and that one is called Be Podding You, for people who know The Prisoner.
1: <laughs> do, uh,
4: do you have any other potential
1: PBS podcasts that may be forthcoming? Sean Hodgman?
4: man i'm i'm really in an all creatures great and small space right now okay oh, yeah that, i mean that is one comfy blanket of a show one beautifully comfy blanket of <laughs> you feel like you're draped in puppies when you watch that show
0: it's the best feeling says yeah. someone who cuddled baby goats earlier in the week yes oh we yeah we got to cuddle and, baby goats that's what we do here now
4: and there was and there was the or the, or the earlier one that came out in the 70s featuring the guy who ended up playing the fifth doctor who i don't know maybe something in that space we'll see <laughs> John Hodgman, who used to have a
1: vacation home in Leiden, Massachusetts, was a frequent resident in and around the valley for many, many years. My good friend. Uh, Rightly act. believes that hot dogs are not sandwiches. Agreed. Thank you. Yes, we didn't even. Kalees, need you to get and I
4: need it. to talk more because <laughs> I see we see eye eye yes. a lot, see to aisle. Yes, Kalise is an
1: uber nerd. You would get along uh, swimmingly. I know it. Yes, excellent. And well,
4: it's so nice to meet you, and so that's nice, so nice to spend some time with you again, Monty.
1: <laughs> yeah, as always, and um, I will be spending time with you on television with my whole Belmonte family starting tomorrow on Hulu when Up Here debuts a musical comedy with the, so many big names of Broadway and. Uh, Lots of me, and also John
0: Hodgman. You're now a big name on Broadway. You are a big name. You're in the company of. You're going to be in Lin
1: Manuel Miranda's next production. I know. Greater to have your name. Not,
4: not if he's smart. But please watch (laughs) up here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Up here debuts on Hulu tomorrow. Thank you, John Hodgman. Thank you. Tomorrow in the Fabulous Four One Three, part two of our tour of the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown. (laughs) And we'll enter the Wine
0: Thunderdome with Michael Quinlan from Table & Vine. And our Friday
1: musical guests, Johnny Erion and Mike Stinson, who are playing at the Egremont Barn in Stockbridge this Saturday.
0: Our director is Tony, where do I get new batteries done? Our engineer is Betsy, leave me out of the battery conversation, but also loves artistic butt's Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, has a bizarrely hard time finding quality AA batteries Rankin, Kyra, has batteries under her desk Foster, and Chuck Dubé, punk rock is his battery.
1: Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, who are performing at Bombix in Florence this. Saturday, Bella's Bartok playing tomorrow at Hawks and Reed. Jonathan Richmond, Phil Collins, Jay Giles Band, and the Cramps. I'm Kelly Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte.
0: See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.
3: Oh, I love New Dum dum